This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. And this is Between the Lines. Let me say this. China has not threatened us, and despite five years of this China threat appearing in the Sydney Morning Herald, particularly, you know, written by, you know, provocateurs like Harcher and people, it's all been untrue. I've been attacked by, uh, by Harcher, that psychopath who runs this attack on me about me being a representative or putting the views of the People's Republic of China, you know. But he's had free movement for five years to run this scare campaign in Australia. And so this, this maniac has put this stuff, and he, he's on the ABC, he's on the drum every other night, you know. He's got the great stentorian voice, but no stentorian mind to match it. That was Paul Keating on Peter Harcher, and it has to be said, Harcher is one of our nation's most experienced and distinguished political journalists. Peter is political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and author, most recently, of Red Zone, China's Challenge and Australia's Future. Peter, welcome back to Between the Lines. Always a pleasure, Tom. Your response to Paul Keating? Well, Paul's the king of colour, isn't he? And, uh, you know, you've got to... You've got to respect that. And uh, he's given lots of us many laughs over the years. And, uh, you know, no one else has called me a psychopath, a maniac, and certainly not an acid drop. That's, uh, that's inventive. Um, and, you know, he and I have had a love-hate relationship going back 30, I think it's about 36 years now, Tom. And mm. it's love when you agree with him 100%, and it's hate when you want to quibble with him. And at the heart of this, at the heart of this disagreement is the fact that um, Paul Keating... He is, as you know, and this is just a fact, that Keating is the leading apologist for and defender of the Chinese Communist Party in Australia and refuses to see China as posing any threat to Australia, and that's the core of it. Well, Keating says uh, China has not threatened us and that your arguments about the nature of the China threat are either untrue or distorted. Well, an apologist would say that, wouldn't he, Tom? <laughs> but look, let's let's deal. Let's do what Keating doesn't do and deal with the substance of it, because Keating's insults are one of his two great forms of deflection uh, from a losing argument. One is deflection, and the other is whataboutism. So let's go to his point. Um, so that Ke- Keating says that China doesn't and hasn't threatened Australia. Uh, well, he's got a very short memory, hasn't he? It's not just threatened Australia; it's actually delivered coercion. So. The trade bans that Beijing put in place on Australia uh, because Australia was refusing to bow to Chinese imperatives, uh, now that, that applied to over $20 billion worth of annual Australian exports. And it was accompanied by a list of 14 demands, uh, which many people seem to have forgotten. Those 14 demands haven't been withdrawn. They're still on the table and they demand that Australia change policy and indeed change some of its fundamental values, including free speech. Uh, So when you get an act of coercion accompanied by a list of demands, would you not think that's a threat? Keating would say, and he's not alone here, Peter, that all of that was in response to what Beijing saw as provocative behaviour by Canberra. You know, the call for an international inquiry into Wuhan, uh, the the 5G Huawei ban, and of course the uh, the foreign interference laws. How would you respond to them? Well, on those policies, they had bipartisan support from both the parties of government in Australia. None of those were seen as being provocative uh, by the two main parties. They were both, all those policies were seen as simply acting defensively in the Australian national interest and protecting Australian interests. And that's the thing uh, you have to remember about Paul's uh, arguments here. He doesn't speak for the coalition and he certainly doesn't speak for the Labor Party. And the Labor Party uh, has ignored all of his, not only his arguments and his tub thumping, but his invective and, and his rather unedifying personal attacks on Penny Wong, Anthony Albanese, Richard Miles last week, that was just just unseemly, especially the attacks on Wong. So he doesn't represent Labor, he doesn't represent the mainstream of the political system, and nor does he represent the Australian public opinion here, Tom. The Lowy Institute poll last year, for example, asking, this is just one of many indicators, but uh, asked Australians, do you think uh, it's likely 
that China will pose a military threat to Australia over the next 20 years. And three quarters of Australians, 76% to be exact, said, yes, I think it's likely. So Paul's on his own here. He would say that uh, China is just flexing its muscles, but it's doing so in a relatively benign way. How would the region cope if China did indeed replace the US as the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific? Countries would have to decide whether they were going to submit to China's demands or try to resist China's demands. And there would be uh, different responses and there would be contests of will and different countries would respond differently. But in general, we would see a, a, a reshaping of the region according to China's interests. For example, in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. So in the East China Sea, uh, China, as you know, has made claims to more than 90% of the maritime territories of the South China Sea, which includes uh, it's, a, it's a sweeping claim that includes territorial uh, waters and, and claimed waters of half a dozen Southeast Asian nations. Uh, China would extend and, and enforce that, and countries would have to decide whether to send their navies to, to confront uh, the, the Chinese navy. That's a pretty, that would be a pretty brave decision. So it's not a direct China threat to the mainland of Australia. It's more that China would control the air and sea lanes, and we depend on them for our international trade. The Albanese government and the Dutton opposition have both made that point clear. Mm. Keating uh, has redefined threat. He has redefined security to suit his argument. So, Tom, we heard him last week say that he, he, he defined Australian security as preventing a hostile power from, quote, crossing the beach, unquote, mm. and that you don't need, for example, you don't need sophisticated nuclear power submarines to do that. With the same money you could buy, he said, 45 to 50 conventional Collins-class mm. submarines like the ones we currently have. But crossing the beach is not the only definition of Australian security, as you say, Tom. Mm. Look, remember what the Japanese strategy was in World War II. Japan decided it was too difficult to invade and occupy Australia, just too hard, too big, too remote. Their strategy was to put military bases in the Solomon Islands and, the, and in PNG and cut off Australia's lifelines to the world, cut off its maritime trade, separate it from the US, prevent it being used as an asset in World War II. If you have a look at where China's interests have been expressed and muscles flexed in the Pacific, uh, you'd have to suspect they've got something similar in mind. So that doesn't involve crossing the beach. Peter, if you're right about China, and clearly uh, the broad consensus of Western strategists and intelligence agree with you, but if you're right, is there a danger that we could get too close to the Americans, which could undermine our sovereignty. That's another one of Keating's arguments. Let's get your reaction to something the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, said on the eve of his death in 2015. People do not realise the extent to which we have been entwined in United States policy in the last 15 or 20 years. At a time when the Cold War is over, the United States is now in the process of establishing a new Cold War in the Pacific. Her military policies failed in Vietnam, failed in Iraq, failing in Afghanistan. The Middle East is a mess and leaving all that behind, they say they're going to shift their forces to the Western Pacific. We are part of this part of the world and we don't want to be part of America's future mistakes in this region. But has the government been frank with Australians, saying where it might lead, saying that we're going to be asked to pay for a lot of it? It's America trying to tie us into their policy of containment, which is about the most dangerous position Australia could possibly be in. Now, that was Malcolm Fraser making a more sophisticated version of the Paul Keating argument. Of course, this was on the eve of his death in 2015 when Barack Obama was in the White House and Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. Peter Harcher. Well, Malcolm Fraser uh, isn't entirely wrong, I would say, Tom. But uh, look, if you look at Australia's recent history with the US, um, I would say that Australia was too close, um, not because of military dependence, but because of a political psychology. So, for example, uh, the Vietnam War. Well, the Brits didn't join the Americans in Vietnam. It didn't damage their alliance. 
The Canadians didn't go into the Iraq war with the Americans. It didn't damage their relationship. Yet Australia has had this reflex that we must fight in every US war simply to keep the alliance alive. I think that has been excessive. I think it's been slavish. It's already happened. Let's, let's take a step back. What is the uh, overarching threat to Australian sovereignty and Australian security? It's the People's Republic of China, or the Chinese Communist Party more specifically. Now, is the US alliance any use in defending Australia against that? Well, yes. So what do we do? Do we, do we junk the alliance because there's a risk that we, you know, we're, going to, we're going to be too closely tied to it? Or do we selectively take advantage of it to protect ourselves? Well, of course, you don't throw away an asset, especially a valuable asset, if you're heading into a fight. So mm. there's no logical argument for rejecting the alliance. There is, Fraser's right on this, I think, a powerful argument for, for Australia to exercise prudent, independent judgment about any venture that the US might want to get into. But the flip side to this argument, Peter, is that the US can't be relied on, that it lacks staying power, especially if the US remains so bitterly divided and frighteningly polarised at home. And you've written a lot about this problem in America. Now, Walter Russell Mead, one of America's most distinguished foreign policy commentators, whom we both know, he was in Australia recently, he recently uh, said that uh, reports of isolationist sentiment among Republicans in the US capital, uh, opposition to defence spending in both parties, that is leaving Australians wondering whether the US could enter another period of isolationism. So the question here is, how worried should we be about the lack of US staying power in our own region? Well, we have to be realistic and see it as a real threat, a real possibility. So that's an argument for building independence and resilience as much as possible. That's also an argument for, it's not an argument against acquiring uh, military kit from the US where we think it can be useful. Some will say, and Keating does, that making Australia reliant on nuclear-powered submarine supply ties us irrevocably to the US and, and that therefore we're vulnerable, that that could be interrupted. And that's entirely, entirely plausible. Maybe it will be interrupted. But while it's, while it's not, uh, I would suggest that it's in Australia's interests to acquire what it can, as it can, uh, from the US and other sources where Australia can usefully use it in, the, in its own defence. I, I don't think there's a cause for panic either way. I think it's a time for cool, rational, independent and prudent judgment. Yeah, the cold hard reality, though, is that since the Keating-Howard era in the 1990s, Australian governments, if you like, have been riding two horses simultaneously. Our largest trade partner, China, and our most important security ally, the United States. Clearly now, Canberra is getting very close to Washington, while relations with China, they may well continue to deteriorate. Now, if that happens, could we be isolated in the region? Listen to Singapore's Kishore Mabubani late last year. Certainly, Australia could become politically isolated from its neighbours if it continues to have a very hostile relationship uh, with China when all the other, most of the other neighbours in China, in one way or another, they don't count out to China, they don't bend to Chinese power, they remain independent and strong, but they also have worked out ways and means of getting along uh, with uh, China. And I think this is something that's missing clearly in Australian foreign policy in, the, in, in recent decades. So it's important for Australia to wake up and ask itself, how can it adjust to the new geopolitical environment in the region around Australia? That was Kishore Mabubani, a Singaporean intellectual and former diplomat, on this program last year. Peter Harcher. Well, uh, Kishore has long been an accommodationist. That's long been his case. If Australia had taken Kishore's argument or Paul Keating's advice, for that matter, we would not, Australia would not have resisted and rejected the trade boycotts that the Chinese government applied to Australia. Australia, if it had taken Keating and Kishore's advice, would have buckled. Now, what Australia did was not only stand up to those uh, sanctions, but continue to erect defences, whether it's the foreign interference laws, whether it's the anti-espionage laws, uh, and of course, strengthened its relationships through the Quad with the US, India and Japan. 
uh, and pressed ahead and announced the AUKUS arrangement. So China's response to all that, China's response was to undo the freeze, start withdrawing the trade boycotts. Australia had successfully defied China just this week. Uh, the continuation of the resumption of political contact and officials' contact between China and Australia continued with Chinese defence officials coming to Canberra and meeting their Australian counterparts. So Australia took the diametrically opposite counsel of accommodationists like Keating and Keyshaw stood up for its interests uh, and has been rewarded uh, with success. Uh, so why on earth would Australia take the counsel uh, and of those people and despair? And I can completely reject the idea uh, that we are somehow in a, in a unique situation. More than 120 countries in the world count China as its biggest trading partner, including the US. The US has exactly the same situation we do, where China is its major threat and its major trading partner. There's nothing special or unique. Countries are taking their own defences and their own stances uh, to defend themselves. The Japanese have announced a doubling of their defence budget. The new South Korean president has speculated publicly about whether South Korea needs to acquire nuclear weapons to defend itself against China. The Philippines has just opened access to US forces to use more Philippines bases in anticipation of more uh, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. Countries everywhere. The EU has declared China to be a systemic threat uh, and has, has developed a policy to defend European interests against China. Everywhere in the world, Tom, countries are bracing themselves, preparing themselves and arming themselves to deal with this uh, persistent and growing threat and running away from it, surrendering to it does not help Australia in any way. Peter, always great chatting. Pleasure, Tom. That was Peter Harcher from the Sydney Morning Herald and author, most recently, of Red Zone, China's Challenge and Australia's Future. Now, still to come on Between the Lines, will Australia weather the global financial storm? Up next, the US Republican split on foreign policy. Well, to whom should Republican presidential candidates turn for foreign policy advice. The neoconservatives and Republican hawks who believe in an activist US global leadership role to uphold international order. Now, you may recall they dominated US public discourse after the 9-11 terror attacks, especially in the lead up to the Iraq invasion two decades ago this week. Or should Republicans embrace the realists who place more emphasis on restraint and discrimination in a messy world that does not conform to American expectations. Now, the realists have been marginalised for much of the post-Cold War era. Now, I raise all this because one leading, albeit undeclared, candidate, this is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he recently upset conservative commentators and Republican leaders. Why? Because he called the war in Ukraine a territorial dispute that is not a vital US interest. The US national interest, DeSantis claimed, would be better served in East Asia to keep in check a rising China. Now, to address all this, let's turn to David Frum. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic magazine and a former speechwriter for US President George W. Bush. David, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Now, the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page has called this Trumpian retreat on Ukraine his first big mistake. David, your thoughts on Ron DeSantis' foreign policy? Well, I think you make a first mistake if you don't understand that DeSantis's calculations here are not about foreign policy, but are completely driven by his reading of the internal Republican race. The Republican Party is split between those who uh, want to support Ukraine and those who uh, don't. Um, and the reason that many Republicans don't is it's not a lofty reason about realism. It's not ideological. It's that Republicans have eternalized this idea that Putin was Trump's friend. Ukraine was Trump's enemy. And if you like Trump, therefore you like Putin and you don't like Ukraine. And it's not a lot more complicated than that. So DeSantis is trying to walk between those raindrops. As a member of Congress, uh, DeSantis was a strong advocate 
of support for Ukraine. When, when the Russians invaded in 2014 and annexed Crimea, DeSantis criticized uh, President Obama then for not doing more to help Ukraine, not getting them better weapons. He tried to uh, oppose a, an arms control treaty. But he's now trying to thread this, this line between the pro-Ukraine and anti-Ukraine Republicans. And mostly he's done that by keeping his mouth shut and saying very little. Now, if you just leave motives aside, he does say that giving the Ukrainians long-range weapons and fighter jets, that should be off the table. They're his words. He called for peace negotiations with Moscow. You obviously disagree with that argument. How do you think the U.S. should deal with Putin? He didn't say any of that. And that's how that's what a slippery statement this is. He didn't say deny them warplanes. He said deny them F-16s. And the reason that that's important is because the planes that we're talking about giving them are, MiG, are MiGs, from former uh, Soviet-era jets from former Warsaw Pact countries, as DeSantis knows perfectly well. So what he wanted to do was to say something that sounded like, don't give them warplanes, to appease the pro-Trump part of the party, but didn't actually say, don't give them warplanes, to appease the pro-Ukraine part of the party. He didn't call for negotiations. What he said was that he, he opposed energy sanctions or he questioned energy sanctions on Russia, but he did not question all the other financial structures. So the whole thing is a kind of lawyer's document that was written clearly and having, I've, I used to write these things for president. So I know that the instructions were don't close any of my options. I want a document that sounds tough, but actually doesn't say much. And that's what he delivered. As he did, for example, one of the most remarkable things he did was uh, on the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were 165 members of the Florida National Guard on a training mission in Ukraine. They were hastily evacuated out of Ukraine and moved to neighboring NATO countries. They completed their mission in August of 2022 and returned home to Florida. Now, a lot of governors would have used that opportunity to say something. Um, I mean, governors don't always greet returning National Guard, but here's a perfect moment to, to say something. He made clear to do nothing, to stay far away, because he didn't want to take a side. You mentioned the anti-Ukraine wing of the Republican Party. Now, Charles Kupchin from the Council on Foreign Relations is not one of those members. This is Kupchin. He says that Zelensky, quote, risks overpromising, potentially tying his hands politically should he need to scale back his war goals. Now, surely the same goes for NATO leaders, David? NATO leaders to this point have been actually pretty hesitant about stating war aims. I mean, I think we'll see war aims stated um, over the course of this year ahead as we see the success or lack of it of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Kupchin is, I, I, I have to say, I would rank him among those who are very Ukraine skeptical in the foreign policy world. I don't know if he still considers himself a, a Republican or not, but he, he's definitely among the Ukraine skeptics. Um, I, I am not a military expert at all. I have no idea of um, how promising or not Ukraine's hopes are in, in um, the fighting season ahead. But until we have a grip on that, and I, I'm not going to make a prediction, uh, we don't know yet what the basis of negotiation is going to be. Surely the Russians have taken a lot of bad defeats. How bad the future it will be for them, that, that will decide what the negotiation looks like. Do you think that NATO leaders, and this is Kupchin's point, they may come to regret overstating the strategic importance of a Ukrainian victory? Again, that's unpredictable, but I think if Ukraine wins, that is, that's a colossal fact. And we've already seen the benefit. I mean, if the Chinese leaders, for example, were thinking about invading Taiwan, they have to look at Ukraine and say, how would this go if there are 100 miles of open sea between Russia and Ukraine? That would be even worse. And the, the legacy of this war is to show that even societies that seem divided, outgunned, outnumbered, uh, will fight for defense of their homes and can fight very successfully. And the NATO and the broader Western alliance, as divided and fractious as it seems, is capable actually of coming together and getting a lot of weapons where they're needed very fast. And that's something that has to give any aggressor pause, whether the aggressor is located in Moscow or Beijing or Tehran. David, why do you think Russia invaded Ukraine? Well, again, I'm not going to be present myself as any kind of expert on the internal thinking. Um, but my my guess is, Kiev is a predominantly Russian-speaking city. Um, it, ha it had the largest free, uh, uncontrolled Russian-language media, the largest um, Russian-language free 
Russian language printing press. Uh, it was a model of the, the possibilities for a Russian speaking society in the same way that Taiwan is the model for the possibilities of a Chinese speaking society. And that's very frightening if you're trying to clamp down and show your Russian speaking people on the other side of the line, there's no alternative to the corruption and authoritarianism and brutality of Putinism. So Ukraine's existence was a challenge to Putin's authority in the way that Taiwan's existence is a challenge to the Chinese state's authority. Back to DeSantis and the Republican base. Um, obviously, this guy, um, Tucker Carlson, who's on Fox News, he's a very popular host on the Fox News channel. He's one of the, he represents that anti-Ukrainian wing of the Republican Party that you talked about. Now, he would say that Russia sees Ukraine, that's part of the Western security umbrella on Russia's doorstep. Russia would see that as an existential threat, which is why Moscow is going to great lengths to wreck Ukraine as a functioning state. How would you respond to Tucker Carlson? Well, Tucker Carlson also says that you can extend your life by exposing your testicles to ultraviolet radiation. I mean, he says night after night, one insane, crazy thing after another. The question is, what Russia has achieved from this war is to have Finland join NATO. Finland's a lot closer to a major Russian city than, than Ukraine is. 40, 50 miles from St. Petersburg. And Russia said that that's completely acceptable to them, that Finland joined NATO, because um, they, they've tried war once and, and it's not working. Um, I, I don't think you can make the case. Let me put it this way. If Russia were fighting this war for limited goals, it should have negotiated a long time ago. There is no possible goal, that, uh, limited goal, that is worth the extraordinary price in human life in treasure that Russia has paid. Russia's destroyed itself as a European energy provider for God, forever. I mean, they will not be buying Russian gas ever again. Uh, and the United, Norway has replaced Russia as, as the most important supplier. The United States is coming aboard as a supplier of liquefied natural gas. Russia has just set fire to every national priority. So if the goals were limited, I think sometime last year, they would have said, okay, now it's time for us to talk and see what, what we can retrieve from this self-inflicted fiasco. Your points about Russia are well made. Its demography is also going badly in the wrong direction. It's a declining power, no question about it. But how is Ukraine a vital US national interest, David? It's not a security ally and there's hardly any trade. Whereas if China takes Taiwan, I think this is DeSantis's point, at least from what I can tell, if China takes ta Taiwan, it would amount to a, basically a, a giant aircraft carrier in Northeast Asia with tremendous power projection across the Indo-Pacific region. I suppose the point here is surely a rising China is a much greater threat to the US than a declining Russia, or for that matter, Iran. The principle at stake here is one of um, aggression crossing borders. And in a way, you could say, precisely because China is so strong, that we want to avoid conflict with China at all costs. And in fact, the lesson that is being administered to the world that Invasions across internationally recognized or quasi-recognized borders with an intent to overthrow states and annex them, that's going to go ill for the aggressor. That's a very powerful lesson for the Chinese. It's not either or. Success in Ukraine um, will make the, def the defense of Taiwan more po possible, not less. And I think the, you say, what is the vital interest? The vital interest is not Ukraine exactly, but it's the same vital interest that led the United States to war in the Persian Gulf in 1990 when it defended Kuwait, which is uh, invasions and annexations are very dangerous things. And when um, an aggressor tries it, uh, the world rallies to try to stop that aggressor. But surely the lesson of Iraq and Afghanistan and all those so-called forever wars, didn't they expose real limits and weaknesses. I mean, why should the US be the world policeman more than three decades since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism? Well, one of the things that I find very inspiring about what's happened in Ukraine is the United States is not here being the world's policeman. The, the United States is part of, and not always the leading part, of a global coalition that includes the European Union, that includes the United Kingdom, that includes Japan, that includes Australia, uh, my home country of Canada. Um, that this is a this is a massive coalition response. In fact, a lot of the um, first moves to defend Ukraine have come from the United Kingdom and not from the United States. In, in area, in category after category of arms, the United Kingdom was the first supplier, not, not the United States. And of course, Ukraine has tremendous economic needs. I mean, they're funding a healthcare system and paying pensions and employing people through this terrible war. And the money for that is coming from the European Union. So it's not the United States being the world policeman. It is, it's the opposite. It's, it's showing the redoubtable power of the coalition of democratic nations. And I think if, if you're a Taiwanese, 
you have to feel a lot more secure today than you did 18 months ago. My guest is David Frum from Washington. His many books include An End to Evil, How to Win the War on Terror. It's co-written in 2004 with Richard Pearl. David, uh, DeSantis has been attacked uh, by Senators Mitt Romney, Lindsey Graham, the neoconservative commentary magazine, the influential Wall Street Journal editorial page, as I mentioned before. But where is the evidence to support the claim that the Republican Party base supports their position when presumably support for the NATO mission is bound yeah. to decline the longer this war goes on? Well, there is some very good polling on what Republican base thinks, produced by an important pollster named Karen Stoltis-Anderson. And I, if you go to my Twitter feed, you can see the link to the poll. Um, and it finds the Republican, uh, Republican primary voters pretty evenly divided. Um, it finds older and mailer Republicans are more pro-Ukraine, younger and more female Republicans less pro-Ukraine. That That's maybe not a surprise. Uh, and I think, as you're, you're right, there has been a drift away from Ukraine among Republicans since the war began. Although I, I, say, I am going to argue that that, ha that has much less to do with anything that is happening in Europe and a lot more to do with the commitment of some Republican leaders uh, to the Russian and anti-Ukrainian cause. Remember that if, if you're a strong Trump supporter, you know, even if you don't have all the details, it's because of Ukraine that Trump got impeached. And you know that Trump regards Ukraine as a hostile, as something hostile to him. And you know he's friendly to Russia. If you don't really care about Europe, but you care a lot about Trump, you're going to lean pro-Russian and anti-Ukrainian. That, that's not a big geopolitical thing. That's, a, that's about tribal identity. Yes, but uh, Donald Trump's America First platform, which clearly resonated with, with, the, with the grassroots in 2016, isn't that a, a symptom of, of a broader crisis in Republican foreign policy circles. I mean, hardly anyone, including the Republican base, hardly anyone these days thinks uh, the Iraq invasion 20 years ago this week, they hardly think that was justified. Uh, the Iraq wars had a long shadow. And I, I wrote about it in a piece for the 20th anniversary of the, of the war, started the war in the Atlantic. I talked about some of the long-term political costs, uh, the discrediting of a lot of foreign policy leadership, um, and yes, the, the, it blighted the careers of both Jeb Bush or the presidential hopes of both Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. And it's, if the war had been more successful, it's very hard to see Donald Trump getting anywhere. 2016, Iraq hurt Jeb Bush. But what helped Donald Trump were other kinds. It wasn't what helped Donald Trump. That's um, it, it explains why the Jeb Bush campaign collapsed. It doesn't explain why Trump was the choice to replace Jeb Bush. Now, in 2002, you were the principal speechwriter for President Bush's famous Axis of Evil speech in early 2002, and you were referring to Iraq, but also Iran and North Korea. I take it based on that article you mentioned earlier in The Atlantic that you, you now think the invasion of Iraq was not justified? No, I think it was not worth the price paid. The war in Iraq um, was an outgrowth of the previous war um, in 1990, Iraq had gained peace at the end of that war in 1991 by promising to fulfill certain conditions in submitting itself to inspections, making sure that it destroyed its stockpiles of dangerous weapons and, and other, other compliances as well. And that system of enforcement broke down in the late 1990s. And by uh, the year 2000, for example, Iraq was selling almost as much oil onto international markets as it had before the first Gulf War in 1990. So the sanctions regime was coming unstuck. Now, the war was obviously not a success. There weren't weapons of mass destruction inside Iraq. We didn't leave behind a stable society. And 4,000 Americans lost their lives. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, military and civilian, we don't know exactly how many, but a lot, lost their lives. And the result has been enduring upheaval and chaos. So no one would look at that and say this, this was a successful outcome. But to say it was unjustified is a, is a different kind of argument. You can say something was, a, was not worth it without saying something was some kind of reprehensible action. Is there an analogy here between Iraq and Ukraine that both the US and Russia invaded sovereign independent states without UN approval and then they tried to dismantle their security apparatus? Well, the United States did have, a, it was enforcing a, a treaty that Iraq had already entered into, so there was a legal regime. Um, but China, but, France and Russia did not give support to the invasion. 
Yep. No, that's right. They did. They didn't agree. Uh, many other, you know, Britain, Poland, Spain, and others did. I, I think it's not. I, I just find it's not a good faith argument that people say, "Oh, well, therefore Russia is entitled." Russia has fought wars since the breakup of the Soviet Union, twice in Chechnya, which is part of the territory of Russia, but really a functionally independent place. It's fought two invasions of of Georgia. It's, it's it attacked Ukraine in 2014, and again now it's fought. It's been fighting a long running war in Moldova. It has been um, an aggressor against its former subjects, now neighbors, over a period of a generation. And uh, they didn't need any American action or non-action to inspire them to do what they're doing to, to Ukraine any more than they did in 2014 when they annexed Crimea. Putin is running his own game. And again, I've, I've offered my guesses as to what motivated him. Obviously, I don't know. But the question that I, I keep puzzling after is why isn't Putin right now trying to get the best deal that he can get? Because this war is bound to get worse and worse for him. Why not? Why does he not make peace now? I, that's the thing I really don't understand, because he could get a better deal today than he's going to get in July. We don't know that. I mean, he might be thinking that they're making gains or they're rebounding from their losses uh, incurred last summer, northern summer. Uh, yeah, but right now people are still... Um, buying and using gas. I mean, we, he now goes into the warm weather when Europe uh, doesn't need to buy gas from him. Uh, he's watching the buildup of the, these flows of energy from Norway, from under the North Sea, from the United States. He's seeing Europe drift away from him. He's seeing um, this massive brain drain from his own society. I think something like a million Russians have, have found refuge in places from Armenia to Dubai to Germany. Um, and, and many of them are the best educated. His army, we don't know what the losses are, but I mean, 100,000 is not an out-of-bounds estimate, and some people think it's higher. I mean, they're, they're now pulling on tanks out of museums, and he is becoming more and more dependent on China. So in July, when the weather's good and uh, the Ukrainians can counterattack and the, the flow, the supplies continue to flow, I, just, I don't understand. Like, the question that everyone asks about the Ukraine, why do the new Ukrainians negotiate now, actually applies to him. Why doesn't he negotiate now? That was David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic magazine and a former speechwriter for US President George W. Bush. Well, what daunting economic challenges we face. Inflation remains stubbornly high at around 7.5%, the highest in three decades. And all those interest rate rises in the past year, we've had something like 10 cash rate increases in a row to the tune of 3.5%. They're bound to tighten cost of living pressures. Add to this higher energy prices, and it's no wonder business and consumer confidence is plunging. Meanwhile, those big spending programs from the Rudd-Gillard era, I'm thinking of the NDIS, Gonski Schools, Aged Care, Child Care, Public Hospitals, as a percentage of GDP, they continue to escalate then there's interest on debt, and that's not to mention defence spending. That'll increase significantly to pay for the landmark AUKUS submarine deal. Now, to make matters more challenging, there's this global financial fallout. We've got banks, the markets, the governments, they're on alert for possibly another messy scramble to address the next financial crisis. So to get a sense of what all this means, let's turn to our panel. Joanne Masters is Chief Economist at Baron Joey, and Su Lin Ong is Chief Economist at RBC Capital Markets. Joe, Su Lin, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Tom. Great to be back with you. Now, prominent economist uh, Noriel Rubini, uh, he's a pessimist, but uh, he says inflation has gone from too low to too high. Secular stagnation might be turning into stagflation, so that's not just high inflation, but high unemployment. Joe, to the extent he's right, how do you account for this? Well, I think it's too early to know if we're seeing really big structural secular changes in the economy, to be honest. Clearly, we're seeing a period of higher inflation. We don't actually have stagflation yet. And I think one of the big differences at the moment is that uh, the labour markets across uh, advanced economies are very, very tight. And even if you look at economic forecasts, we are forecasting recession in many economies, but not a material lift in the unemployment rate. So it's not clear that stagflation is going to occur. And it's certainly not clear that it is uh, structural or secular. So 
like I, I just think it's a, it's a little early to know. Um, and one of the charts that I often show our clients is from the Bank of England that shows 800 years worth of data. And what that shows is this long run structural decline in uh, real neutral cash rates, which works against that argument for secular st- stagflation. And interestingly, over that entire 800 year period, inflation globally has averaged two and a half percent. Professor Rabini also warns that hyper-globalisation, particularly in the 90s and the 2000s, has now become deglobalization. And he goes on to say that a boom in everything is becoming an asset bust. Sulin, do you share Professor Rabini's pessimism? I'm probably not as pessimistic as Professor Rabini. I think what we have clearly is some adjustment in asset prices going on, and you would expect that after a period of um, very low rates, excessive amounts of liquidity that's fueled a number of asset classes. And as we adjust and policymakers normalise rates and push them into restrictive territory, you know, just how far they go will be part of that discussion in asset prices. But it's inevitable you see some adjustment and it's probably healthy. I think the deglobalization trend, you know, that was already underway prior to COVID. It's intensified in the last few years, um, you know, whether it's countries wanting to secure their um, supply chains for health, for um, IT, for defence, even en- and energy security, obviously. I think all of that, um, a little bit more of an inward looking focus, um, does add to the inflation challenges it goes against really the principles of comparative advantage. And so at a time where inflation is high, we think about that deglobalisation in a longer time period um, and and whether that sees somewhat slightly higher inflation um, over the next decade or so. And maybe that, I think, you know, to Joe's point and a much longer history, maybe that shifts the dial a little bit on somewhat higher inflation um, in the decade ahead. Okay, you mentioned the upward pressures on inflation. This week, the Federal Reserve raised rates again, but it did acknowledge greater uncertainty after the recent banking stress. Joe, what do you think this means for central banks going forward? It's a really complex economic backdrop for central banks at the moment. You know, they were already balancing the trade-off between inflation and growth, and now we're adding financial stability into that balance. Now, we often say central banks only have one policy tool, being the official cash rate, and certainly that is the main tool for trying to rebalance economies in terms of supply and demand and lowering inflation, but they do have a multitude of other tools for trying to ease financial stability concerns. So what we've seen from the European Central Bank and from the US Federal Reserve is rate hikes despite this financial stability concerns and issues that have emerged. And I guess that what, what that tells us is that economies are still out of balance. Um, growth is still too high. Inflation is too high. We don't have enough spare capacity in the economy. To create spare capacity, you have to slow demand. Now, there's two ways that that can happen at the moment. We can hike rates or financial conditions more broadly can help and do some of the job. And really, that's what we heard from Fed Chair Powell um, following the rate hike. You know, he talked about financial conditions have tightened. We know that that has an impact on the economy. What we don't know at the moment is how tight those financial conditions are and will be and for how long. So the trade-off will be if financial conditions through this financial instability tighten further, then you'll see fewer rate hikes. Um, But equally, if they don't um, stay tight, then the Fed and other central banks have more work to do. So I still think there's a couple of rate hikes ahead, but probably less than we were thinking you know, three or four weeks ago. Yeah, well, Peter Costello, our longest serving treasurer, was on this program late last year and he once again reaffirmed his concern that the worst thing that could happen now would be for the RBA uh, failing to convince the public that it will see things through on the inflation fight. And this was his point because there's no point in starting it if we can't finish the job of slaying inflation. But but Su Lin, all this uh, financial insecurity and instability as a result of these bank failures overseas, uh, does that suggest perhaps that the RBI might soon pause interest rates? Look, I think they will definitely take into account the developments of the last two weeks. Um, Financial conditions have tightened 
globally, less so in Australia. Um, but nevertheless, we have imported some of those tighter financial conditions and the key is how much it translates through to the real economy. So for the Reserve Bank here that has already signalled they are getting closer to a pause um, and that's for a number of reasons that they probably considered a pause in March, would they look for any reasons to carry out that pause? And I think that uncertainty over just how much uh, financial conditions are tightening, how much they'll feed through to the real economy via higher lending rates and potentially a pullback in lending is something that will be very much taken into consideration um, as they head into the April meeting. We would argue at the moment that inflation is still too high in Australia. The global dynamics as well tell us that there is a risk that certain parts of inflation prove sticky, particularly on the services side. And that comes back to the very tight state of labour markets, both here and globally. And so when we look at those dynamics, um, the prudent thing to do is probably a bit more tightening from the Reserve Bank. It's a question of timing. Do they pause for a little bit to assess this unfolding global banking development and the knock-on impacts to Australia? Or do they push ahead and try and get on top of inflation? Um, and that's a challenge for them as they head into the April meeting. And all those interest rate rises are obviously going to have an impact. There's often a lag. A lot of ordinary folks will be feeling the squeeze from the cost of living pressures. But are we in such a bad situation, Joe? I think of our fossil fuel producers. They're earning record profits. We're experiencing a, a gold rush of export earnings. And as a result, that's helping pay down the federal budget deficit. So in Australia, Joe, are we in a better position than the rest of the OECD? I think we are. And I think there's a variety of reasons to be relatively optimistic. As you said, we do have elevated commodity prices and the terms of trade and that that flows through international income. We're also seeing a material lift in education and tourism and the earlier reopening of China and the timing of that at the start mm. of our ac academic year is hugely positive for our economy. And in fact, population growth more broadly is a positive that Australia has that other advanced economies can't necessarily lean on. We've got population growth that is back to pre-pandemic levels and in states like Queensland running at around 2%. So that will help um, reduce the probability of a really hard landing here in Australia. It should help to ease some of the labour supply issues um, and more broadly, um, just give us a relatively stronger sort of economic or more resilient economic outlook than you see for others. Yeah, that's all very encouraging. But on the other hand, spending programs, as I mentioned in my introduction, I mean, they're escalating. And when the commodities prices, they'll come down as they eventually will, it's just inevitable. I suppose the question here is how does a government find the money to pay for all this? So, Sulin, optimist or pessimist about the Australian economic outlook? So we are reasonably optimistic about the Australian outlook and I think it is relative to other places. And Joe's right, you know, when we look at the uh, migration and population story, Australia is a net energy exporter, this big pool of additional savings that households have. There are reasons, I think, to be a little bit optimistic. But specifically, I think, in terms of the budgetary challenges, there's no doubt that um, structurally, there are multiple challenges for Australia. And while near term, the budgetary position will look better, um, the terms of trade are elevated, commodity revenue is high. It's exact, you're exactly right, Tom. We can't bank on that forever. And some hard work needs to be done to address the structural deficit. So the challenges of uh, health and additional spending, whether it's NDIS or other health-related um, expenditure, demographics, the ageing population, and clearly increasing defence expenditure, all keeps expenditure as a percentage of GDP quite elevated and well above the long run average. It's running around 27%, about two percentage points above the long run. And you've got revenue kind of stuck around this 25% of GDP. So how do we how do we meet that structural gap? Um, it's, you know, there's, there's no easy solutions here, but they're also fairly straightforward. You either need to reprioritise expenditure and cut in some areas 
areas, or more importantly, you need to lift sustainably the revenue base. And that is a tough discussion, particularly when cost of living pressures are front and centre. I think for households, um, it's a very difficult discussion, but that revenue base does need to be repaired and, and likely through changes to taxation. My guests are Su Lin Ong from RBC Capital Markets and Joanne Masters from Baron Joey. Finally, the Credit Suisse, this is Switzerland's most famous bank. It's the biggest lender to have been caught up in a crisis that started by, I think it was by the collapse of Silicon Valley in early March. Joe, um, the UBS takeover of Credit Suisse, um, we should stress that UBS uh, would not be around to carry out this takeover had it not been bailed out nearly 15 years ago. So why do banks all too often get a get out of jail card? <laughs> Um, Well, if we go back to the expression, money makes the world go round, perhaps that's a good place to start. We know that when the financial system breaks down, when we don't have the flow of credit, when the financial system is not working, the cogs are not moving, we know that it has a material and devastating impact on the economy and on people's lives and livelihoods, to steal an expression from the pandemic. So we can discuss how and and how that happens, um, but we know that when a financial crisis hits, that that we have to do something about it. And we also know that early action uh, is a key part of a successful plan. And that's what you've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, Deliberate action coming very early from a playbook that is pretty well worn now. You know, we've had a variety of financial crises in the last couple of decades. And in a sense, this is a good thing. We know what needs to be done, and we know if you act early, you mitigate the risk down the Yeah, track. but the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, just this week, she announced a de facto guarantee, de facto guarantee of about $18 billion in US bank deposits. So here's, here's the Treasury essentially saying all deposits are insured. Sulin, does this mean that from now on, moral hazard rules? I mean, won't the moral hazard of rescuing banks, doesn't that just set a terrible precedent? I think there's a couple of things there. The importance of banks, the credit creation, that is the lifeblood of economies and you need deposits to do that and stable deposits as well. I think it's important as well, particularly in the US um, situation, to understand that that guarantee actually comes from FDIC insurance and the banks contribute to that. So this isn't taxpayers bailing out in that sense. Um, And so, you know, it's an industry and changes to rules that have been created really to make sure that it is the industry that that pays and is supportive. And I think that's quite important. As far as the moral hazard goes, well, you look at the alternative. Um, You know, in some cases, particularly in Europe, these are what we call globally systemically important banks. Their tentacles are right through the broader economy. Um, You know, any kind of collapse there creates far greater uh, distress, disruption and economic turmoil than would otherwise be the case. So, it is a bit of a question of judgment. I think as long as we're clear about who's funding this, um, that's part of, of the equation. Um, but, you know, the moral hazard question, I think, can be asked uh, on a number of things. It, it's, a, it's a question of risk reward and, and trying to weigh that up. And I think in this instance, the importance in terms of stabilising confidence in the system, acting quickly, making sure the credit creation continues, albeit possibly at a reduced rate, is really quite important. Yes, but as the late prominent US economist Alan Meltzer once said, quote, capitalism without failure is like religion without sin. It doesn't work. <laughs> Joe, Suleen, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Great Thanks to be with having you. me. That was Suleen Ong, Chief Economist at RBC Capital Markets, and Joanne Masters, Chief Economist at Baron Joey. Well, that's it for another edition of Between the Lines. Now, if you'd like to hear last week's discussion of the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq, that was with the leading US diplomatic historian, Melvin Leffler. Just go to the ABC podcasts where you can download Between the Lines for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for your company. Bye for now.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.